What's up? Jason Bay here. You can call me JBay for short. I'm the host of Blissful Prospecting. And this podcast is for sales reps and sales teams that you know love landing you know big meetings with their clients, but they've heard of this thing called video prospecting and they've been too afraid to send out a video. So if you've ever felt that way, I definitely have. You're listening to the right podcast and you're in the right place. I'm super excited for the interview today because this topic is something that I have actually been thinking about and, and wrestling with. Uh, for those of you that have ever wrestled with an alligator, I don't know why I thought of that just now. But um, if you've ever you know experienced mental you know sort of health uh, issues, you know anxiety, depression, anything like that, um, we're going to dig into that today. Uh, we're going to be talking about how to manage and prevent burnout. And a couple weeks ago. I have experienced some anxiety in my life. Um, the last time before a few weeks ago was like 10 years ago. <laughs> um, I was a marketing director at a new job and there's just a lot of pressure uh, to get results. I moved to a new place in Southern California. I, you know, I didn't have a lot of money at the time and it just felt a lot of pressure. And that was interesting because there was a clear trigger for it. Uh, when I felt this a couple weeks ago, I was just on my computer um, and then my chest started getting really tight. I started feeling a little frantic and not really knowing exactly why. And the reason why I want to talk about this is, I mean, COVID has obviously had an impact. Um, you know, if your quotas haven't been adjusted or they've been increased and it's been harder to sell, that can have an impact. If it's a little bit harder to make ends meet, with like costs and things like that, because your pay has been decreased or you've been laid off or whatever it might be, all of that can really, you know, lead to burnout. And if you're a manager, I think it's really important to know the signs of when someone could be, you know, on the brink of uh, burnout. And there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of psychology um, at play here and things that you can look for. And Chris is going to dig into that stuff in way deeper detail uh, than I honestly have the knowledge to <laughs> right now. So I, I I learned a lot from this conversation with Chris. And one of the things that you know I would think about as you're listening to this is like, what are one or two actionable things that you can apply for yourself to figure out if you're in this burnout stage or if there's anything that you need to do? Um, and then with your team, you know, one thing. If you're managing a team that you could teach your team a tool that you could teach them uh, to help them if they're feeling burned down. And before we get to the interview today, I got to tell you about a tool I'm really excited about called Wingman. And on this topic of burnout, I think one of the things you can really do uh, is listen to more recordings of your reps or more recordings of yourself. Because when we're in the moment doing something, sometimes it's kind of hard to spot things that we're saying or doing that may uh, not be doing us favors, you know, when it comes to prospecting. And Wingman is a really good tool that you can use not to only to listen to recordings, but you can pick up patterns really quickly without having to listen to an entire 30-minute discovery call or demo call, let's say, in what you're saying. Um, it's a place where it can kind of bookmark and transcribe for you automatically so you can pick up and listen to certain areas and listen to your tone. And how you're talking about what you do. Um, you can listen to your reps. That's also a really good way that you can not only coach them, but you know, kind of hear if there is anything in there around lack of energy or enthusiasm around their job with your prospects. So go check that out at blissfulprospecting.com slash wingman. And let's get to the interview today. So one of the things that obviously has stuck out and the reason why we're talking today is like you 
just loves talking about psychology. And, and what I always uh, am curious about with folks like yourself is how did you get into psychology? Is it something you've always kind of thought about? And you know, is it something you've always studied? Did you get into it when you were selling? Like what, what caused you to like really get into and like study this stuff? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. When I, it started when I went to university, actually, because originally I wanted mm-hmm. to do sports coaching, uh, love football, or you, or you might call it soccer. Okay, um, I was going to ask, what and, kind of football? <laughs> <laughs> um, and throughout that, started understanding more about the kind of psychology of sport and, and athletes, which is so heavily linked, of course. You know, people who play sport have gone into sales and been very successful. So that kind of interest was there. And then, of course, you know, as we've spoke about already, this feeling of anxiety used to struggle with it a lot it got me thinking I don't want this to just sabotage me for the rest of my life like there must be more to this than just the kind of like things that are playing out so I wanted to understand more about okay how do I let it serve me rather than sabotage me how do I get a better understanding of it which led me down the route of mindfulness and led me down the route of okay well the stuff I'm learning about sport I can surely apply to myself um, and just got really super curious with it because it wasn't only interesting to me. It was I was using it and it was benefiting from it, and it was benefiting me personally, professionally. Um, and then as I started helping others, which is why I wanted to be a coach, was to develop other people. It was giving me that kind of like feedback as well to go. Oh, I'm actually helping other people, which is like that feel good factor. So it was kind of helping me in three ways, really. Yeah. So it sounds like there was a lot of like intrinsic motivation for you there too, to mm. like do something that made you feel really good um, with sports psychology. Cause there's a lot of, I don't know why people feel like the sports analogies are overdone with sales, but I feel like it's so applicable because I feel like sales should be treated more like a sport and it should be treated more. Like, I play basketball. Um, there are ways that you can practice basketball so that when you come to practice, and when you come to a game, you're better, like dribbling skills. There's all yeah. kinds of stuff. And then there's the whole mental component around how much you believe in your abilities that totally affects how you play the game. Uh, but I'm curious, like with sports psychology, what were some of the big foundational things that you learned at university uh, that stuck out to you that you found to be useful? I think a big thing was just the understanding, ironically, of self-awareness. <laughs> like how how much of a factor it can play. and the kind of psychology piece around limiting beliefs and um, the factor they can have on you, which I found really interesting because as soon as I started understanding them, I started understanding more about my self-talk and what was going on in my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then by then I was almost like, it felt really surreal because as I was having conversations with people, even when I started selling, like going door to door, it was my first sales job. Um, I could ha- I'd have a narrative in my head, like as if I could hear this, like, the story of what was going on. So I wasn't only present in the moment, I was aware of the situation and being able to take a step back from it. And that is why I attribute to that psychology piece of being very self-aware of, of not just being too stuck in the moment. And it's really helped me with the self-awareness piece, limiting beliefs is, is always having perspective is, is, you know, it's, I think a lot of people misunderstand it and think, Oh, you know, if, if you've got these skills, you're never going to have a bad day. You're never going to, these things will still happen. You're still going to get the same thoughts, feelings, mm-hmm. behaviors that come over you. It's just how you react to them. That's like the biggest thing. And once I understood more of how I could control that, that's what was like the real game changer for me. You bring up such a great point and it's, 
what I think used to be very philosophical, like a long time ago, before people had, before there was science and psychology, <laughs> you know, before it was like, yeah, you know, there's what happens to you in life and there's how you react to it. And those are two separate things. And you get to kind of yeah. control for the most part, depending on what it is, you know, how you react to certain things. And let's focus on that for a second, because do you find in your line of work, do you, do you see some sales reps or sales teams or sales managers or leaders that feel like they are not in control over how they respond to things? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think people either don't think they have control or probably put too much emphasis on things they can't control so that by the time it comes to things they can control, their time and energy is spent. You know, this, this concept around decision fatigue, for example, which is why you see people like, Mark Zuckerberg only wearing the same things. It's like you've, you've got a finite amount of choices each day before you end up frying your brain because your brain is burning calories every time you're thinking. Um, but yeah, I think you know that's that's something that I'm very mindful of, just not overdoing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the decision fatigue is. It's interesting that you draw that parallel because I never really thought of it that way in terms of like, if you have all these negative uh, thoughts and stories that you're telling yourself, like you're, it takes up a ton of emotional and mental energy Mm. and like decision fatigue is essentially, correct me if I'm wrong. It's kind of this concept that like there's a gas tank in your head and it works a lot like muscle fatigue. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. you only have so much output that you can have in a current, in a, a a current day uh, mentally and you drain the tank. And you choose to whether to drain that on positive things or on negative things. And when you spend a lot of time on those negative things, it's kind of draining your willpower, I guess, yeah. to be able to respond to the, you know, in a way that is positive. Yeah. You know? I mean, it, it drains it even more because you can't do anything about it. It's like, you know, your car is stuck on mud and you're just like foot down, yeah. revving even harder. And it's not going anywhere, but you're having to put so much more effort in. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's, there is that only so much power. And, and the same thing goes for prospects, like when you're speaking to people. Uh, whenever I talk to people, I say, like, whenever you're talking to someone, imagine your prospects on a treadmill. And every time you're talking, they're having to keep running. Uh, because yeah. what they're doing is they're consuming information. How hard is that information? Like, what speed are they going? And how much are you talking to, to someone? And think, is your prospect tired of speaking to you because you're talking for too long? or what you're telling them is too complex, which is making them work harder. Yeah, I love that analogy, dude. Donald Miller, I don't know if you've seen his stuff over at StoryBrand, talks about, you know, think about the calories that you're asking someone to, uh, you know, burn in reading your message and understanding whether or not it's for them. Uh, Dude, I love that analogy. Uh, How can someone, like self-awareness is an interesting topic to me because it seems like, you know, people are, are either pretty self-aware or they're just really kind of clueless. I don't see a lot of like the in-between. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for someone maybe that doesn't have a lot of the self-awareness, how do, is that something you can practice? Is it a habit? Like what are some things that someone could think about if they want to increase their level of self-awareness? Yeah, I think there's a few things really. I think first of all is, for example, take sales, take a, take a deal, take a month, take a quarter is really investing time and sitting down and going, what did I do to influence that? Mm-hmm. Now, it's very easy sometimes for us to celebrate our success and you know, then dwell on our failures. 
Um, and whenever we dwell on our failures, we'll say everything that we did wrong. But when we when something goes right, very rarely do people sort of sit down and go, what did I do? Like, what did I, and it's not, you know, building, it is building up your ego because you need to, but personally, it's doing it in the right way. Um, it's not being too self-absorbed. I mean, for example, the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team, statistically the most successful sports team of all time. Most professional sports teams, when they lose, they'll come in early the next day and analyze it. And when they win, they'll go out and celebrate. Celebrate, yep. The All Blacks do it the other way around. So, and this isn't saying don't analyze your losses, but what they do is when they, when they win, they'll come in early the next day and analyze it. And when they lose, they'll go out. Because they believe it's far easier to replicate something you're doing than changing something you're not. It's easier to learn and build on something you're doing already because a lot of the time that is innate to you. That is something that is a natural ability which you can build on and then work out some of those other things that aren't as natural to you. So I think it's really important someone is reflective of that and goes, you don't just know what your product USPs are or your companies, you know what yours are. Like That's the biggest thing. And you don't necessarily have to tell people that. You just have to know that because that's what you can really drive home and go, right, do you know what? I am naturally curious. I have not got to work on my questioning, but where I do have to work on is probably handling conflict. So if I get objections, that's where I need to spend time. Whereas you might just go through thinking, oh, you know, I don't really know what I'm good at. Just, it was luck. It was just like, they were just a nice yeah. person. I caught them on the right day. It's like, no, what did you do? So I think that's one big thing that people can do. And and, and another thing is just writing things down is, a, is really underrated. You know, it's yeah. great that we've got technology and we've got things that can create transcripts and automation. But writing things down really helps people understand what's going on in their heads. Um, for example, like if you try and type without looking, you can do it. But if you try writing without looking, you really struggle. So even when you're typing something down, you're yeah. still not fully paying attention to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I would agree 100% with that one shift that I've made in most of our training and coaching now is I'll share a second screen and it's a camera that I have right here and it projects down onto my desk and I have, I draw out frameworks and diagrams for everything. Nice. And you know what I see in those zoom calls? I see the two dozen or whatever many people I see everyone looking down like this, looking up writing like this. When I would do slides, People never really took notes, dude. I'd see people looking off. I'd I'd see people typing. I'd see people doing all kinds of stuff. And what I noticed is it helped me actually focus more when I was teaching Mm -hmm. stuff. And then people were having to write it down and they were, they're retaining the information more and they're wrapping their head around it like a framework yeah, versus a slide with words on it. Um, So writing, like actually physically writing, I think it's a lost art, dude. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, particularly your thoughts. I mean, we have on average yep. 6,000 thoughts a day. Like that oh is a God. lot of information <laughs> yeah. going on in our heads. And no wonder when people are like, oh, I haven't hit my goals. Have you got them written down? No, it's because they probably got lost in the motorway of traffic that you've got going yeah. on up there. Writing things down helps us, particularly with anxiety and stress, it reassures us. It helps detach some of that emotion, mm-hmm. um, but also tells our brain, look, we won't forget this because it's written down now. It's like... yeah. With with kids with children, for example, you write things down, you show them because you make you reassure them, and it's the same way we need to do as adults. Is writing things down helps us detach from that, helps us look at it with a bit more of a logical perspective, which is why a lot of the time people say, "I'm so good at giving other people advice, I can just never take my own," is because often it's all in your head and it's all yeah. so emotionally attached that you can't you can't do anything with it. 
Oh man, that's such a good point, dude. So with self-awareness, is it, is, is mindfulness is connected to this as well? It's like being purposeful. Is this another way of looking at it where it's like, Hey, don't just go through a 30 minute sales call and not be purposeful about like, what am I thinking right now? What's that other, per- it's like, is it like taking those kind of breaks Yeah. Like when you're doing something to think about like, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And stepping outside of it a little bit and kind of like not going on autopilot, but doing the exact opposite really of autopilot, like being super intentional, like really thinking about a lot of those things. Is that kind of what we're doing? And is that, is that a muscle? Is that something that we can exercise and turn into a habit just in and of itself? It is, but it's not something that someone's just going to listen to this and then go, right, I can now become like a, a ghost of myself and watch myself on every call. Yeah. But I think it is, it is checking in and taking those moments because what you'll be able to do is be truly present and listen to what is actually yeah. being said. Because I think ex- sales experience is a great thing, but it can also be a biggest threat if you then start to make assumptions of what people need, what their problems are. And then you go through the same motion of asking the same questions and your your disco calls are all the same. It's like, okay, but where's that kind of variety for yourself? But also like every conversation shouldn't be the same. Yeah. Because if you felt like that, the prospects probably felt like that. They've probably had the same call with someone else they've called and therefore you're not standing out. So I think it is just, it's doing it bit by bit. Even if you do it, like try it once on your call and just go, right, for a second, I'm going to halfway through, I'm going to take a step back and just think, how is this actually going? Like yeah. if this call, if this call ended now, would I be happy with everything that I've got? Is there anything else that I haven't asked or haven't probed on? Mm-hmm. And it's okay to, to do that, to go, look, do you know what? Can we just go back to what you said earlier? Having sort of thought about it, it would be good to know a bit more about this. Um, and I think people will appreciate that rather than, you know, you get off the call and you're like, oh, do you know what? I didn't ask that. And it's like, you, you knew, you knew yeah. it. If you just checked out for a second, not checked out, checked in in a way, then you would realize it. Yeah. I think to, to add a tag to that too, it's like adding frequent check-ins with what's Chris thinking right now? Yeah. You know, throughout a sales call or, or a cold call when someone responds with an objection. That's one thing I've been working on with our, the people that we work with is this habit of someone says, dude, not interested right now. Do I just check in real quick and be like, I wonder why Chris would say that. What's, what's Chris feeling? Hmm. He might be in the middle of something, might be frustrated, might have a long day ahead of him, whatever. But it's like just checking in real quick and then being able to talk to that versus focusing inward and thinking, oh God, I'm, you know, telling yourself, oh God, another person not interested. Yep. I, I I suck at this. Like cold calling sucks. It's so terrible, you know, versus what's what's going on with Chris right now? Mm-hmm. And then just talking to that, oh hey, hey, Chris, totally understandable. I know I probably caught you in the middle of something. So bet the last thing you wanted was a cold call. And then kind of going into like the rest of how you would, you know, quote unquote, handle the objection. Um, how is this connected to burnout? Um, so the stuff that we're talking about right now, this like mental well-being. And actually, if we zoom out just a little bit from there, I'm curious. What are you seeing from a mental health standpoint, a mental well-being standpoint during COVID versus like prior to COVID? Has it gotten a lot worse in, in a lot of ways? Like, what are you seeing in your line of work? I'm seeing a lot more transparency with it. I, I don't think people might perceive that, you know what, being in isolation and everything that's happened, working remotely, you know, everyone, people are struggling with their, their mental health and well-being. But my point to some companies is that this is, this is 
this is pre-existing this all this has done is kind of lifted a veil on what was already there mm-hmm. because what you'll find you know if you uh, i use an example um you know i used to side story when i came out of uni i worked with kids on the spectrum for a year coaching them um and you'll find kids on this on the spectrum will mask around people they're not familiar with which means they won't be their true selves they'll they'll hide mm-hmm. it and it will come out at a later date so what i believe is a lot of people have been masking it without realizing it we've been going about we've been so busy at work we have all these social events, all these things like targets, all these things to, to go for that we've been so busy that we haven't had that headspace to think. And now that things have slowed down a bit um, and we do have that space and we are our own conversation sometimes, we're paying a lot more attention to it. Yeah. So I think there is a factor where it's, yes, it's made it, it's it's got worse, but it's still some of these challenges have been there. So I think, you know, companies need to need to realize if, if you're listening to this and thinking we don't know. Oh, we'd have a problem is well probably do it's just not you're not aware of it um but going back to your your point about burnout i think you know as as we were talking about before uh, there's some stats from uncrushed recently saying that two in three sales reps have or are experiencing burnout i wouldn't um, be surprised if it was higher <laughs> yeah well exactly yeah with recent events i mean you know for, when we're talking about mental health and well-being one in four of us are will at some point go through some form of mental health or well-being challenges in our life, but it it triples the threat of that when you're in sales. Yeah. Um, so three out of four people, so if you've got a team of 12, four of them will have or are experiencing it. Yeah. Um, and burnout is something that's really important to understand because I think people, you know, this kind of culture of work hard, play hard, um, you know, goal-driven, it's a really interesting study. I don't know if you saw it recently from Freshworks that did it with Harvard Business Review around um, the correlation of happiness in sales teams to success. Um, and they actually found that the companies that had a less uh, content and happy sales team and who weren't as successful were still using terms like work hard, play hard. And these terms were actually deemed as detrimental as an impact as a problem, whereas versus things like supportive and um, mm. humble and transparent are actually deemed as uh, positive ones so there is a there's a real kind of like correlation here and and understanding that in this day and age of people talking about you've got to hustle you've got to work hard is you've got to remember that you're just seeing on the face of things like someone's highlight reel sometimes online you're not seeing their bloopers which you're often comparing yourself to yeah um so yeah i mean Burnout in itself, I'm happy to share a bit more about the stages and how how to spot it. But I think that's kind of like my thought process on where we're at with the mental well-being piece. I mean, I definitely want to get into that. I have a quick you know, comment on, I mean, we talk about in sales that, you know, people buy based on emotion and justify with logic, right? Turns out there's a lot of science, you know, with that. And I think if we flip it around and look at ourselves, we're very emotional creatures too. So when we say work hard, isn't that more of a feeling? Like, how do you quantify whether or not someone is a hard worker? This is what yeah. I can't stand, dude. I, I know. People would highlight, I used to work with this company, uh, College Works Painting, and I was, you know, a lot of that's going door-to-door selling house paint. So I have a door-to-door background. I don't know if we talked about that before or not. But, um, and people would be like, oh, yeah, so-and-so is a hard worker. Um, they're the hardest worker. And I'm just thinking like, well, I work pretty fucking hard too you know, and I get better results than them though. So like, why are we celebrating the hours that this person works? And to me, it's like, what, 
I always thought like, well, what makes a hard worker? Like, how do you actually quantify that person's a hard worker? It's, I think it's more of a feeling that people yeah. have about this person being a hard worker. Um, is there something there or am I crazy? I don't No, I, I agree. Do you know what? Like, if anything, when someone is a hard worker, you're thinking, hang on, why is it taking them so long to do something? Yeah. Like if you, if you went out and you say you went to a store and, and someone was like two companies building a car and it's like, this guy worked on the car for 50 hours and this guy worked on the car for 20 hours. Well, why is that guy taking twice as long? Like yeah. If, but often one of the things that people, uh, why people have that attitude and why they put so much hours is linked to imposter syndrome. Mm. So when you look at imposter syndrome, there's, there's four different types of imposters. And one of them is the workaholic is the, the person that in their perception is that, they don't have enough talent, so they need to make it up through time. They need to be the first one in, the last one out, and that's the attitude they need to have. And quite often, you know, imposter syndrome is 50% of it is linked to genetics. The other 50% is normally how you're brought up and nurtured. So, for example, if when you're younger, a lot of emphasis is placed on accomplishments, exams, sports, you'll then go through life thinking, if I'm not successful, I'm not loved or if I'm not respected, Yeah, which brings out this imposter syndrome, which 70% of us will encounter at some point in our life. I don't know about you, but I'm super excited to hear about the other forms of imposter syndrome. Before we get to that, if you've ever wanted to create more repeatability in the way that you talk to prospects, whether that be through cold calling or through discovery or demos, one of the things that you just need that I just didn't realize because I had never really used a tool like this outside of with clients, never used one for myself, was a way to not only record your calls, but a way to kind of coach you through, you know, AI and machine learning, something that could just notify you when you're doing bad stuff and saying stupid things, <laughs> right? Things that are costing you the sale or costing you the appointment. And a tool that I use and rely on for that is called Wingman. And Wingman will actually bring up cue cards and notify me real time in a way that's not distracting or that the prospect can see. Like during a demo, if I'm saying the wrong thing when I'm talking about our training programs, and it's just been a game changer for me, I highly recommend you check it out either as a rep or a manager if you don't have something like that for your team. And you can do that at blissfulprospecting.com slash wingman. Let's get back to imposter syndrome with Chris. Oh, dude. So I got to hear, what are the other three types of imposter syndrome? So the other three, you've got the, the natural genius, the expert, and the perfectionist. Mm-hmm. So the natural genius is someone who feels like they have to be right first time. And if they can't grasp something first time, it's, they're a failure because they don't yeah. have enough inte- intelligence as other people. The expert is someone who all, you need to know all the knowledge and you need to know it all before you even start something. Um, <laughs> and if you don't, then you're fearing that, oh God, if I don't know this answer, then I'm going to look bad. And the other one is the perfectionist, which, you know, a lot of us probably can relate to is expectations are impossibly high. If this yeah. is coming from a manager, you struggle to delegate um, or, or hand things out. So they're the four different types of imposters that, that link to, and one of them is that that piece around having that mindset of I need to work hard, which is why you, you'll see people. And it's a good sign. If someone is thinking that first in last out to your point, we might think, Oh, do you know what? That's really good. But it's also a, a sign that you should have a conversation with that person because is there something sitting underneath that that needs to be explored? Yeah. And by the way, I'm not saying that it's not good to work hard. 
I, I just no. feel like our parents' generation and the generation prior to that had really shitty mental health and they didn't talk about this stuff. And like, those were all the things that they thought that they saw as a correlation with success, you know? And well, I guess it would be causation, right? That were causation of success. It's like, Hey, you do mm. this and this is totally connected. And it's like this imposter syndrome thing is really interesting with the workaholic. Dude, I mean, there's so much that you could, I mean, you could, we could do a whole episode on imposter syndrome, dude. Um, yeah. So that's, that's really cool, dude. So let's, let's kind of backtrack a little bit again and go back into uh, mental well being in terms of burnout. You said there was like four phases of burnout, I think it was, or something like that. Like, yeah. what, what should we know about burnout? Well, the first sign of burnout is actually the first, well, it can be, it's not always, but one of the first signs is excitement. And, mm-hmm. A lot of people, when they hear this, think, what? So I'll give you an example. Say, for example, you go to the gym and you've had a really good session and you feel great. Like you feel energized, don't you, when you've had a really good workout? Mm -hmm. You feel like super pumped. But you know, if you tried to do that exact workout again, your body would fail on you. Yeah. Like you just know that because you're feeling it already. The aches are starting to happen. You're tired, you're sweaty, you're thirsty. It's the same with our, our mindset. Like if we go and have a really good month, quarter, week. In our heads, we get excited. We get the adrenaline flowing. But we don't think, oh, actually, do you know what? If I did that all over again, exactly the same right now, my mind would burn out. And that is that is what happens because we put it under that continuous stress. Stress doesn't cause burnout. Like stress can be a good thing. We can utilize stress. Um, you know, and our bodies react to it in a certain way. But chronic stress where it becomes something over and over that's just constantly on it's like you know when you when you've got a, a car and you 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 uh you stick it into fifth gear like it's like trying to go around in fifth gear the whole time is like it suits you at yeah. a certain point but if you keep it in there you're going to really struggle and you're going to yeah. you're going to really burn out from it so the first point is excitement the second one is is sign of stress or anxiety is where it becomes more constant so everyone can get stressed but it's an interesting thing actually when when we get stressed and you can google this it's the 90 second emotional window we release uh, hormones into our body that will actually reset ourselves to a natural state within 90 seconds if we just kind of like sit and observe what is going on in our bodies it's normally our minds that make it live on longer because we tell people about it and we live it mm. um so, so you yeah, kind of look got- for like physical cues to know yeah. that something's happening, like uh, maybe uh, my hands get sweaty or my heart is racing, or sometimes I feel tightness in my chest. Yep. Um, another thing I noticed too is like my eyeballs get like really fatigued, like behind my eyeballs. It's almost like I, I don't get migraines, but it's almost like how people describe a migraine. I get that weird kind of feeling behind my eyeballs too. It's weird. There's a great exercise called clearing the space. Mm-hmm. Um, I, could, I can do it with you now if you want, or I can talk you through it. Dude, concept yeah. of it but let's do it is, so it's notice it name it neutralize it mm. and this is a really effective thing for people to use if you're heading home or at the moment you've just finished work in your home office or kitchen table and you want to kind of like clear your head for the day or or before you know going in to start your day the notice it part it sounds so simple but it links to what we we're just talking about notice what you notice like it's so often that we don't notice we're stressed until we're stressed or anxious till we're anxious or angry until we're angry is noticing those triggers, those signs of 
what when I start to feel like this, what is going on in my body? Like again, talking about that self-awareness piece earlier of what's actually present right now? Like, is it my breathing? Is it my heart rate? Is it my sweaty palms? Is it a lump in my throat? What are my triggers? And a great way I normally get people to do this when I'm training is get everyone to close their eyes. And I'd be mm. like, right, on three, I'm going to pick someone to start singing. And you go one, two, three, and then everyone's like, and I'm like, right, what were you feeling there? Because what you were feeling there is your trigger. That's normally what you'll start thinking. So pay attention to what you just felt there. And I mean, my heart started happens. racing a little bit just thinking yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's notice what you notice and then yeah. naming it. Because we've got five or 6,000 words in the dictionary, but we've got like 60 or 70,000 forms of emotion. And the yeah. problem is like going back to earlier, what we were talking about, when it's going on in your head, you can't quite quantify it. So writing it down helps you put a label on it because what happens when we start feeling like that, the amygdala in our brain, which is like our alarm system goes off. It's like a dog hearing the door bark and mm -hmm. it just goes mental because it just thinks like the house is under threat. I must, and you're thinking the postman comes every day. What are you doing? Yeah. Um, but to the dog, that's what he's thinking. And that's what's going on in our brain. But when we label it, we bring our prefrontal cortex, which is at the front of our brain yeah. back into play because we can look at it more logically. We yeah. label it, I feel stressed, write that down on a bit of paper. Then the neutralized part is, okay, how do we overcome this? So I feel stressed. Why do you feel stressed? Two or three lines off of that, write that down. And then off each of those, can I control this? And if so, what am I doing or what I could I do to overcome this? So why am I feeling like this? Three things. And each one, can I control this? Because sometimes you can't, which again, writing that down helps. And then if I am, what am I doing? Because I might be doing something that I haven't got there yet, so but I'm still in the process, or what could I do? And all of these things are designed as questions. They're not statements, and it links to limiting beliefs. If you put a statement into your mind, it's like a Google search engine. It will come back with all the evidence to say, you're right. Do you remember when you were six and this happened? Or do you remember all yeah. this? You ask yourself questions, it opens it up. And what you do there, you create a bit of a brain map because you can carry that around with you for the rest of the day, the rest of the week. And when you start noticing your triggers, you can read it. And what you're doing is you're then training your triggers to be like a positive thing that helps serve you. Yeah, It's a bit like a smoke alarm going off in the house. A smoke alarm, when it goes off, what do we do? We go into the kitchen and we switch it off and we go, oh, God, I'm glad that smoke alarm went off apart from the noise because it stopped the house burning down. But when it happens to us in real life, the smoke alarm goes off, all these feelings and triggers, we go in and it's if we're in the kitchen going, the house is going to burn down. It's like, we can still do something about it, but people live in it too much. So notice it, name it, neutralize it. I mean, that's a great analogy to the smoke alarm, you know, thing, because even if there was no fire and the smoke alarm went off, like you said, you would still have that physical reaction. That's how powerful your, your mind is, <laughs> yeah. you know, and like the, your senses are, dude, this is a really good, my therapist, when I first met with him, I had trouble labeling my emotions. That was the big thing that I've worked on in the last couple of years was I was having trouble empathizing with other people because I didn't even really understand what I was feeling. Cause I never took the time to actually think and just be present. And he had me do this thing. I can't remember what I was going through at the time, but I had this, uh, you know, I had the equivalent uh, emotion of feeling lonely. I wasn't like lonely cause someone dumped me or anything like that. It was more like just not feeling like I had people to connect with. And I feel a physical feeling in my chest here. And he asked me, he's like, so what do you feel when you're, when this happens? I was like, you know, I feel this feeling in my chest. He's like, does that remind you of any other time? Like when else have you felt that? And I went all the way back to like high school when I was like dating someone for three years and then like they broke up with me and like, I felt lonely. And I was like, Oh, like that's interesting how the emotion is connected to the physical feeling. And it's helped me identify certain things where I can be like, even if I can't quite tell what I'm feeling up here, 
I could look for those physical cues. Mm -hmm. um, I want to go back to excitement. What that made me think of was mania. You know, people that are bipolar experience these periods of mania where they have tons of social energy, even though they might be introverted and they have all of this energy and they even sometimes get a little risky in terms of like the risks that they take. But it kind of reminded me of that because there's, that doesn't last for very long. Yeah. They hit a physical burnout and a mental burnout at some point, And then they go into the depression. Yeah. The opposite of that. But that was kind of interesting. I thought that was, you know, kind of like that mania uh, mm. that someone that's bipolar would experience. And that's kind of interesting. So essentially what you're saying there is we can look at, Hey, if we're super excited about something, let's kind of check ourselves a little bit and make sure that I'm not getting super excited and energetic about something that's not sustainable, you know, yeah. for me to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've all got people in here listening. They've got pets like dogs, for example, or even kids. Like, you know, when your child is being overstimulated or, you know, when your dog probably, you know, wants to keep playing, but they are like panting and they need, they need water. Yeah. <laughs> like a dog is always excited, which I love. Like you yeah. can just go up to him and be like, do you want to play? And he'll be like, I was sleeping, but yeah, I'm excited now. But yeah. it's the same with us. That's exactly the same thing. So it's important, you know, if you're a manager as well, or a leader is, is checking in with your team. And, you know, it's great to have these people that, that want to go again, but it's important to take those pit stops and, uh, and to take that time. And, you know, I've been speaking to some companies recently who've said, look, after the quarter, we, we're going to give like the team like an extra two or three days off. Mm. Um, you know, no expectations, quotas will be reflected by it just because, we want them to kind of recharge regardless of how successful they've been or not, because it works both ways. Yeah. Um, it's important to take those pit stops. Whereas yeah. I think a lot of the time at the moment, it's like doing an F1 race without any pit stops. You're not yeah. changing the tires. You're not doing anything. And you know, you're getting beat up along the way. Yeah. Dude, you're great with the analogies, man. That's, that's, <laughs> I love the analogy. Uh, I, I could do a whole different topic on storytelling. Cause I love storytelling. <laughs> so we talked about burnout, excitement, Number two is constant stress or anxiety. What are the next uh, things that we need to know about burnout? Well, the next thing is where it then becomes, so it's the, the second, so it's excitement. Then you've got partial stress and then you've got chronic stress okay. and anxiety. So it's, it's, it's constant. It's there. What you'll start to notice, you know, if, if it's yourself or you're managing someone is this kind of them leaning away from social activities, which is harder to notice at the moment because there aren't any but it's wanting to be alone. It's wanting to shut yourself off. It's, it's wanting to feel like, do you know what, regardless of today, I just can't wait to go home tonight and not speak to anyone, go to bed straight away. And you'll start to feel these physical things where you're thinking just really tired. Like you'll start to really notice it. And, and this is where you've got to be careful as a, as a manager and leader as well, the type of language and communication you have, because if you just think, Oh, someone's being lazy, like that's a very dangerous label to put on someone because then you'll start making them think they are. And of course, when it gets to that point, you can't, you can't control it. Like if you've got to that point, you literally need to, to check out. And sometimes the body's reaction is things like panic attacks and, and other things to actually go, look, you need to stop. If you don't, I'm going to stop it for us. Um, and that's where burnout does come because people think, get confused with stress and burnout. Someone who's stressed is at the office who's visibly like, you know, could be like talking and have had such hard days. Someone with burnout hasn't even turned up. Like they can't even get out of bed for the day. Yeah. Interesting, man. Yeah. The chronic stress, when you mentioned that, it kind of reminded me of, I was reading a book, uh, the body keeps score. Mm -hmm. Have you read that one or heard of that one? I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. 
you might find that book really interesting, man, but it, it talks a lot about trauma and trauma, dude, it has such a long, like a negative long-term effect on people that have traumatic experiences in life that don't deal with it. It creates this chronic level of stress where your body never fully gets out of fight or flight. Mm. And it's just always like running on empty. Your analogy with you know running on fifth gear is, uh, is so like on point with that. It's, it's weird when you get that, like it just, everything just kind of goes down a couple of levels and things get a little slower and you can't seem to re-energize, yep. but you're doing all the other things. You're probably getting a decent amount of sleep. You might be eating good and getting a little bit of exercise here and there, but like the, the energy level, the, like the excitement is just not there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's where you start to notice it even more when you're you know, you're having a good month or something happens and you're just not reacting to it in the same way. Mm. You're not getting excited by these things, even like outside of work, like with family and friends, you're not, you're not, you're not motivated or excited in the same way. Yeah. Is there another stage or is it, are those the three? Um, yeah. So, well, the, the four, you've got excitement, then um, stress, well, infrequent, like sporadic, and then you've got mm. chronic and then you've got burnout. Yeah. So what are some other, I love that exercise, the notice, name, and neutralize. What other things can we do? So if we're, if we're in that burnout stage, for example, what should we do? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think there's a, there's a few things. I think the biggest thing is, is switching off. And it's, it's easier said than done nowadays with, you know, social media and so on. But it's, it's having, it's, it's, it's hard because of course, you know, this is making the assumption you've got the right kind of culture there, but you know, if people are listening to this, if you're a leader or a manager, I'd say this is where you, it's so important to create that culture where someone, if they do get to that stage feels comfortable being able to switch off. Cause you might say, I'll have two days off, but if they're still answering emails and doing all this, they haven't actually, if anything, it's more stressful. I don't know if you find that, like mm-hmm. you've been in bed ill and you're still reading emails. You're like, Oh God, if I was in the office, I could speak to this person. Now I've read this email. Like, yeah. oh, and it, it can cause more triggers. So I think the biggest thing is is realizing it again, like going back to the point of labeling it, going, I'm actually burnt out. And and re- it's important to retrace those stre- those steps when you're in that stage to go, how did I get here? It's not just important to obviously recover and take the time to do so, but it's going back and going, okay, what was it that was making me stressed? What were my triggers? What are some of the things that I can notice next time? And it's important for a business to do that as well is to, is to take that time with that person and go, what can we do next time to stop this from happening? Cause it's mm-hmm. not down to that person. You know, a, a lot of the time it's down to what the expectations and the actions that they've put themselves under, which yeah. is part of the business's role. So I think, you know, if you've had someone who, who has been suffering with this is sit down with them and, and, and they'll appreciate that and go, you know, not just right two days back. Okay. Crack on. How are you doing is what can we do? What can we learn from this? Yeah. Dude, shutting off is so important, man. I I think there's a lot of things that you can do as an individual that I had to do in the last six months was I deleted the LinkedIn app off my phone. I'm like, it doesn't really actually serve me to have LinkedIn on my phone because I compulsively check it. Like, what do I do literally during podcasts? Like right now is I would find myself grabbing my phone still and just checking LinkedIn during a freaking podcast interview. And it was weird because it was such a habit that I would still reach for my phone and I would catch myself and be like, dude, LinkedIn's not even on there anymore. It was such a habit to reach for it. I also deleted the email app 
off my phone. I'm like, you know what? I don't really need my phone to process email. I could just do it on the computer. But dude, switching off is so important, man. Yeah. Oh, massively. You know, I think um, when you talk about habits there, I know there's been a lot of publicity around the social dilemma recently, but there are like habits as you can actually create new and delete old habits. Mm-hmm. And there's four steps to it, which you probably heard around that, the cue, craving, response, and rewards. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of the time, you know, for example, if our phone pings, we aren't necessarily looking to see the habit, it's the reward it gives us, that kind of feeling we get from doing it. So, for example, like with your phone, if it buzzes with a LinkedIn notification and you, your craving is you want to learn, okay, what's come up there? What's it about? So you grab your phone and you read it. So you satisfy your craving. So grabbing your phone becomes a habit every time it buzzes. Um, or it's why people like bite their nails. So for example, if you're answering emails and you begin to feel stressed and overwhelmed by them, you you want to feel in control. You You start biting your nails. So therefore biting your nails becomes associated with answering your emails. Like all these things, like habits we create, there's so many different cues. It can be based on a time. It can be based on a location. It can be based on something that happens, like our phone going off. It can be based on an emotion. So when we feel like this, this is what we do. It's really interesting. And there's a great book, Atomic Habits, uh, to read that that you you can start to reshape some of these things rather than what a lot of people try and do when they're, you know, new year's resolutions is i'm going to just give up this <laughs> it's, like, it's not that yeah. easy you need to think about the cue craving piece yeah dude that's a great book i can't recommend that one enough because james clear really distills everything down in a very simple you know easy you know actionable under uh way to understand it and uh and change um the the habits are really interesting to me because like there's so much that's subconsciously going on there in what you said you know, associating it with a time or like biting your nails and doing something like you didn't consciously decide to make that happen. Your Mm -hmm. body is just like, I think, I guess what I'm saying is like, in a lot of ways, we're actually more primitive, I think, than we like acknowledge in ourselves. There's so much that just happens under the hood. That's totally like, like this happens with our dog, right? Mm -hmm. Our dog gets really stressed out when he goes into the car. We're, We're kind of trying to break that association, and there's this little thing, it's called a, uh, God, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's like this little uh, wrap that you can put on their body and it kind of makes them feel like someone's holding them. So it makes them less anxious. Well, what we had to be really careful of is like when we would put that on before we would go into the car, he started to pick up that when he had this thing on that he was going to be going in the car and it made him more anxious to wear that thing. And that's a dog. People respond in almost the same exact way with like things that they associate with like unknowingly. Yeah, And what I immediately thought of when he said that is like, what are the things you do before you make a, make a session of cold calls mm-hmm. to people? You know, what kind of mental head state are you putting yourself in? How do you uh, decompress after that session? What do you do? Yeah. You know, how do yeah. you create this and make this more of a positive experience versus a negative experience? And what is the story that you do? Like, what are all the other things associated around that, especially at your home down mm-hmm. to the place that you make those calls? in your yep. home, if you're sitting or standing, what you listen to, what you read, but like all of that stuff kind of plays into it, right? Yeah. Well, this is where, you know, people become, you know, thinking, oh, if I do this, I've got to wear this t-shirt to be successful. Last time, I, well, this is my lucky hat. Like all yeah. of these things play into that. But going back to our point earlier, the reason why we create habits is to save brain power. 
Yeah, it is. It is. We you know nearly fifty percent of our day is is made up of habits. It's like, for example, when you leave the house in the morning and you think, "Did I lock the door?" and you have to go back sometimes, is because these things are just preconditioned in us. But it's to save calories. It's to save time and energy on the things that do matter. Um, but I think it's so important, you know, when you go back to prospecting and cold calling is like you say, what going back to the analogy earlier of sports and athletes is what, what is your warm up? Like, how are you getting yourself in this condition? Because if, for example, if you don't stretch before you warm up, you're going to pull a muscle. So it's the, it's the same with calling is that you might, you're, you might be make, wanting to make 30 or 40 calls that day and you might have really good opportunity in the first five, but you burn through it because you're not in your peak condition. And at the end of the day, you're thinking, oh, I made 40 calls. Yeah, but 30 of those, you probably weren't in the right headspace. So you might think you've done the number. And if yeah. companies, which I don't believe they should be just measuring numbers like that, but on paper, they might think, oh, this guy's, you know, dialing through. Is yeah, but what's going on up here? Like what's going mm-hmm. up in your head? Um, like you say, what story are you telling yourself? And do you need to change your state before you tell yourself a different story? Yeah. Let's focus on that because we got a couple more minutes here. We're going to have to do a part two on neuroselling, dude. I know we talked about this before. Um, what are some practical things that you recommend to people like before they do a cold calling block? Like what are some of those if you want to you know, kind of share your, you know, your little tidbits or your insights there? Um, what should people be thinking about preparing? What have you seen, you know, to be helpful? I actually did a video on this the other day, funny enough. Cool. Um, but it was more about morning routine. I think there's a few things, because particularly at the moment, if you're waking up and you're having to make cold calls and you're at home, you haven't got that cold, that kind of buzz, that environment, so you've got to create your own. You know, I think we're so conditioned to book meetings in in our day, but do it in the morning. Like I had a guest on once who said, never wake up by accident. You know, like go go up and just, what do you find that motivates you first thing and do that? Get yourself in that headspace. It could be listening to a particular song. It could be playing your guitar. It could be like jumping around for a couple of minutes. Um, but you've got to change your state. You've got to get your state into the right place. And then, I mean, there's two things that I do that really help them. And one is visualization. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's a big thing. I mean, I had, you, you obviously know Morgan well. I had Morgan on my podcast and he was talking about how Morgan Jangram helped visualization has revolutionized how he sort of looks at his day now. And how do you do that? It's something I've never really done before because it's always felt weird to me. Yeah. And, and you're not alone. And and mm-hmm. what I'd encourage someone to do, because there is a, there is the science behind it. If I There's a ton back, of science. I mean, yeah, all so, the best professional athletes in the world visualize. So if I said to you, like Jason, think back to your favorite childhood memory. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you recall it? Uh, what stuck out to me was sixth grade little league baseball being a pitcher. And I was, I lived in a a town that I moved away from and we played against my old town and we totally kicked their ass. And we thought we were going to get our asses kicked (laughs) because when I moved there, I was on the other team and we kicked that, like the team I was living on now, like we kicked their ass like by a bunch. And I'm like, Oh shit, we're going to be moving there. You Mm. know? Um, So that was like a really happy moment for me. I don't know why I I went back to that, but yeah. Well, what you found there, I mean, you can tell from your energy, your, your state you probably feel quite happy you probably feel like some good vibes flowing through you right now what we do when we look in the past is we kind of like all those feelings are as if it's happening now it's the same for the future like that part of our brain doesn't know the difference between what has happened what is happening what is going to happen which is why we get anxious about meetings or conversations that we're going to have which never turn out as bad as we think so the same thing with visualization we can use it in a more positive sense Mm -hmm. if we sit there and close our eyes and think right just imagine I've finished my day or I've finished my two hours of prospecting or 
I've at the end of this month or the end of this quarter, what is happening? Like what's gone on? What have I done? Rather than going, what do I want to achieve is thinking, what have I achieved? So rather than thinking, how do I get to the top of this mountain is visualizing I'm at the top of this mountain. How did I get here? And it's just spending that time going, what's happening? What did I do? And how am I feeling? Because you'll start to feel all of those things. Because if you start thinking it, you're projecting, which brings your body into that state of, oh, I'm feeling good about this. And if you're not feeling good about it, it might be actually, do you know what? This isn't something I want. This isn't the goal I want to achieve. So, you know, it it does take time. But I think even if you, again, paying attention to the physical things that are happening is so important. Um, because you'll then realize you know they are they are supporting you so visualization is a big thing and then the gratitude piece as well is a big thing for me yeah dude gratitude is another one of those really simple things much like journaling where if you just write down one or two three things that you're thankful for in the morning dude it'll it always takes me out of a bad mood man when i think about oh god no one i know has been affected by covid everyone's healthy I have a good relationship with my wife, my family, my siblings, like shit, things could be a lot worse. (laughs) You know, it's what I always end up thinking. It's so important. I think, you know, in a world of sales where we're constantly striving for more and constantly Mm -hmm. having targets reset, it's important to take stock of of what you've got and what you have, because otherwise Mm -hmm. you'll, you'll just keep going and you'll treat happiness as if it's a destination rather than what happiness is. And the same with mental well-being is it's not where you're going. It's how you're driving. Yeah. Dude, that's a good spot to end right there, man. That's that's some fire. <laughs> um, dude, this has been great. Like I said, we'll have to get you back on part two. I know there's a whole neuroselling. I thought that this might happen. Um, part that you talk about that we'll have to get to. But dude, this has been great. Where where can people go to connect with you, follow you? I know you got a podcast, a new podcast coming out. Yeah. So um, Master Brilliance for Resilience, which yours truly is featuring on. That's right. Um, podcast host here. Um, yeah, that'll be out. Um, that's out middle of October. Um, and check out Sales Psyche, which is P-S-Y-C-H-E, uh, which I've created, which is working with sales reps and managers to reduce their the challenges around mental health and improve their mental well-being alongside, of course, their performance. Um, and then just hit me up on LinkedIn, Chris Hatfield. If you Google my name, the astronaut still comes up, Chris Hatfield. The aim is one day to, to rank higher than him on Google. So just working at that day by day. That was a fun one. The biggest thing that I took away was the different types of imposter syndrome. And one of the things that I thought was really kind of interesting is like the workaholic. That was a really interesting one, like that being a way to overcome insecurity that you have around not doing well. So really appreciate you tuning into this. Uh, you know, one of the things that I hear a lot, you know, around coaching, especially is that, Hey, if, my reps are going to participate in this training or coaching or, or I have them create or consume content on how to prospect or sell better. That's going to take time away from selling and prospecting. And the truth of the matter is that, Hey, if you sit down and do six to eight hours and have a trainer come in uh, in a week, that's a, that is a lot of time away from selling. And one of the ways that you can really help enable your reps is by giving them the ability to coach themselves. And if you're a rep, like giving you the ability to coach yourself in a way that can actually scale and is more than just listening back to a recording that might take 30, 45 minutes for you to listen to. And a tool that I use to scale the coaching with our clients and to coach myself is called Wingman. So make sure to check it out. I mentioned it a couple of times in this episode. If you can't tell, I really like the tool. They are a sponsor of the podcast, uh, but I also use the tool. 
as well. And I'm a big fan of it. So make sure to check it out. Blissfulprospecting.com slash wingman. Thank you so much for taking close to an hour you know, out of your day to listen to this. And we'll talk to you soon.